Lord, as we hear and under, hear your word for us this day, help us to understand it, that we may follow your will wherever it leads. With our friend Jesus Christ, amen. <clears throat> You know, a minister once asked a child in his congregation if she believed in God. And the child quickly answered, sure I do. Well, asked the minister, can you tell me why you believe in God? And the answer took a lot longer this time. And finally, the child said, well, sir, I just don't know why. I think it just happens to run in our family. Well, faith that is passed on from one generation to another doesn't just happen on its own. It takes effort and commitment. It takes a lot of prayer and love. And it takes a community of faithful people sharing their experiences of God and their understanding of God's word. That's what it takes to enable faith to run in families. And when words are lacking, it helps to remember that children learn more by example than by lecture. So if our children see us turning to God's word for guidance and direction, and if our children see us praying for wisdom and strength in difficult times, if our children experience the joy of sharing their abundance with those less fortunate, and if our children learn that the world is a good place and that it's all because of God's providential care, then they will be more apt to follow in our footsteps as we walk with Jesus. Now, young Timothy was a third-generation Christian, judging by Paul's earlier words of encouragement to him in his second letter to his beloved child in the faith. Paul reminds Timothy of his sincere faith that lived first in his grandmother, Lois, and then in his mother, Eunice. And he learned from their example and from the study of God's word. In the modern-day translation of Eugene Peterson's The Message, Timothy is said to have taken in the sacred scriptures right along with his mother's milk. That's early training. You know, he also had reliable instructors who taught with integrity and showed him the value of sound biblical knowledge. <clears throat> you probably heard it said that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I really believe that it takes a community of faith to raise a child of faith. And a deeper understanding of that reality hit me a few years ago when my husband, Zoli, and I were on traveling on a mission trip to Eastern Europe to visit some of the missions and ministries supported not only by the Presbyterian Church in Canada, but by the Reformed churches in, 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 uh, in the United States. Many of the countries that we visited were still recovering from their years under communist rule when the seminaries were closed and boarded up and the religious leaders and teachers were persecuted and imprisoned or if they were lucky enough and had enough foresight, they escaped as refugees to come to the West. You know, as a matter of fact, the Hungarian minister who baptized the first two of my three children was one of those refugees. And when he had finished his years of uh, service in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, 
he returned to a seminary in Hungary to teach the theological students in his retirement. <clears throat> One day on this journey, we met a man, his name happened to be Reverend Laszlo Horkai, and he was the bishop of the Reformed Church of the Subcarpathian Ukraine. And he told us that there were 17 generations of pastors in his family. Can you imagine that? A history of more than <clears throat> 500 years of continuous faith and ministry in the Reformed Church. Despite persecution and poverty and war and famine and flood and communism, his family must have had spiritual roots going right back to the Reformation in Europe back in the 1500s. This was truly a family of living faith passed on from one generation to another. One day after a grueling day of travel from Budapest to Romania, we reached our destination long after dark. We found the women of the congregation were waiting in the village manse to welcome us, for we were being billeted in the homes of local families who had volunteered to host a guest or two. We separated for the night, and in the morning we all gathered at the local church where the pastor greeted us and offered us a tour of the sanctuary. It's a very different place from where we gather here in Kirkwood. Inside this little church, the walls were stark white plastered, and the pews were a rich, dark, carved, aged wood. The floor was made of stone, and the stone was shiny, and it had been smoothed by years of comings and goings. This village church was 700 years old. And through an interpreter, we learned that this pastor had been born in that village. He had been raised in that church. And then he was called to preach in that church when he was 31. When we met him, <clears throat> when we met him he was 62 years old. And in the words of Paul to Timothy, he still continued in what he had learned and believed since childhood. As I looked around the sanctuary, I noticed that there were many colorful banners. A lot of them were in the traditional red and black felt cutout, very intricate designs. And there were embroidered designs as well. They adorned the walls and the communion table, the rails and the pulpit. And these were all gifts from the, con from the confirmation classes over the years. Now, they were artfully and prayerfully made by the parents of the young teens who gathered to study the scriptures and the confessions of the church until they were ready and prepared to affirm for themselves their faith and the promises that were made on their behalf by the parents in the congregation when they were baptized as infants. <clears throat> I could just picture the prayers of these village crafters that were woven into the intricate designs as each child grew to a maturity of faith to know the reality of God's love and grace for themselves. And a few days later, as we journeyed north to the, visit the Ukraine, my husband and I were invited to travel with Daniel Sabo. He was a, a man, a, a minister in the church, 
with a passion for evangelism and mission. And while the two men chatted in their native Hungarian in the front seat, I sat in the rear, just watching the passing scenery. And from my rear view window, I saw fields of sunflowers. And they were all in various stage of their life cycle. In the southern parts of Hungary, the flowers were bright yellow with brown stems bending in the breeze. And further north, the heads of the flowers were now brown and they were drooping, just sagging, heavy, ripe for harvest. And then still further north, as we neared the border, my eyes beheld a, a very curious sight. For up there, the harvest had already been gathered, and the fields were just a barren stubble of brown where the rows of sunflowers had once bloomed. All except for this odd, dwarfed sunflower scattered in the fields. Again, these were bright yellow against the brown earth. And when Daniel saw me watching the sunflowers with interest, the fields, he began to teach me the lesson of the sunflowers, like a modern-day parable. These half-grown plants scattered in the fields were the second crop. They were the second generation. And get this. Their only purpose in life was to give birth to the seeds that would produce the next crop. And I think what a wonderful image for our spiritual journey when you think about it. All of their energy, all of their life force was dedicated to preserving and birthing new life in the next generation. The scripture we heard this morning was part of Paul's second letter to Timothy. It was his swan song, his victory lap around the track, so to speak. For Paul had been under house arrest, awaiting a trial that would likely result in his execution. And so he writes, As for me, I am being poured out as a libation. You take over. I'm about to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So this scripture from today contains a brief summary of his work, not, not as a boast, but as an example to follow, as Paul himself had imitated Jesus Christ in his ministry of sacrificial love. I've kept the faith, Paul says. You know, I've often wondered whether it was easier to get faith in the first place or keep the faith once you had it. <clears throat> you realize we, we all come to faith in so many different ways. Some are born into a family of faith and learn to believe early in life that God is real and God is good. And then there are others like Paul who come to faith through some extraordinary intervention of Christ, calling into question previously held beliefs and, and actions. For although Paul was born into a family of faith, it wasn't faith in Jesus Christ. For Paul was born a Jew, and he was born a Pharisee. 
And he simply had to have a conversion experience to convince him of the error of his ways and the reality and truth of Jesus as the Son of God. You know, maybe, maybe you've met people who wished they had faith, for they see that it can and does make a difference in your life, in the, in the way you handle the big questions that come upon you, that deal with the challenges and losses and disappointments that we come across day by day. But coming to faith for them seems harder for them to accomplish than, say, Neil's Armstrong's first steps on the moon so long ago when he took one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. You know, I have to confess, I was born into a family of faith. I was baptized in a Christian home. And I went to Sunday school, and I sang in the kids' choir, and I did all the churchy things. But I struggled to find faith. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. And no matter how much I wanted faith, it eluded me. To me, it felt like I was a little kid staring into the window of a candy store, and I was really, really, really hungry. And my pockets were really, really, really empty. No money, no candy. But then one day the truth finally dawned on me that faith was simply a gift from God. And we just have to accept that gift and trust that it will be there when and how we need it most. You know, by coming to faith, that isn't a once-in-a-lifetime, once-and-for-all-time kind of a thing. Finding faith is the beginning of a journey, not the destination. It's not a, a plateau we climb up and we reach and we sit back and enjoy the view. And it's not like a graduation diploma or an award for some special achievement. Faith has got to be living and growing and changing or it's doing the reverse. It is fading and dying, and it's just a dead memory of this beautiful state of being. It needs to be exercised, like our muscles, or they atrophy. They let us down when we need them most. One of the ways we strengthen our faith is talking about it. Every time we tell our story, those times in our past when Christ, when God has seemed so very real and near to us, when there could be no doubting his power and his presence, those are the times that we most need to share to rekindle that flame of faith within us and within the people who are listening to us. And something happens. When we remember God's mighty acts in the past, we are also preparing to, to have hope and faith in the future, no matter what comes our way. You know, on that same mission trip I was telling you about, one of my traveling companions asked me out of the blue, so Helen, 
made you want to become a minister? And I kind of giggled to myself because I really didn't want to become a minister. <laughs> I thought, oh, forget it. But as I remembered my calling and those special little things that happened as I was exploring my sense of calling to ministry, my calling itself and my faith was rekindled anew within me and refreshed my, my, my faith. So part of keeping the faith is treasuring the keepsakes of your spiritual journey, just to take them out of the closet or off the back burner and hold them up to the light. And as you take time to reflect on your experience, to do theology, which is simply asking, well, where was God and what was God doing through that time? When you do that, you will continue to glean a harvest of sustaining faith. Now, it's very true that you can't grow in faith until you use what you've been given. I heard about a woman who confessed that, you know, she really didn't want to get too close to God. She didn't really want to show too much promise in matters of faith. Why? Well, because she was afraid that if she showed promise in faith, then God was going to expect great and mighty things from her, and she was afraid of that. Talk about my calling to ministry. But in answer to that kind of attitude, another man said, you know, you never really trust the resources of God until you try to do the impossible, until you try to do what you know you can't do alone. And then he told this little story to illustrate what he meant by it. He said, once upon a time, there was a man who accidentally ran his car into a ditch, and he's out in the country. And he saw a passing farmer, and he called him over and asked him for help. And the farmer said, well, he says, I got an old mule named Dusty back at the farm. I think he can pull you out. Just hang on a minute, and I'll go get her. And when everything was ready, the farmer hitched Dusty to the bumper of the car, and then he snapped the reins, and he shouted, Pull, Jack! Pull, Joe! Pull, Tom! Pull, Dusty! And that old mule pulled the car out of the ditch, no problem. And the driver was greatly impressed. And he said, well, you know, Dusty did a great job, but why did you call Dusty by four different names? Well, the farmer said, you see, it's like this. Old Dusty's going blind. His eyesight isn't too good. And if he thought that he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't have even tried at all. <laughs> you know, friends, Unlike Dusty, we always, we always have someone pulling for us to accomplish what God wants us to do. So we don't need to be afraid that God is going to ask us to do something for which God has not already prepared, equipped, and strengthened us to do. We can relax in God's love. Whether the hard part is coming to faith or living the faith, we know 
that into every person's life there's going to come a time of testing where we are called to keep the faith. But there are a few clues in Paul's letter to Timothy on how to do this seemingly impossible thing, to keep the faith despite trials and threats from within the family of faith and from external pressures in society. Paul writes, you know, I have fought the good fight. He didn't fight every fight. He chose his battles, and he ignored or set aside the anger and the conflicts that didn't really concern him or the kingdom of God. There's an old saying, been going around for a while, if it ain't your shirt, don't put it on. So set those conflicts aside that are not really important. Choose your battles. Paul says, I have finished the race. I have finished the race with training and discipline and with the pacing of a long-distance runner, keeping his eyes on the goal, that crown of righteousness given by Jesus Christ. But everyone needs a community of faith, some true friends in faith to turn to when times are tough. And Paul recognized this in his distress as he was awaiting his sentence. As I've said before, Timothy was Paul's beloved child in the faith. And he wrote words of instruction and advice on running the church and handling the challenges of leadership. He was a true mentor to his pupil, Timothy. But then the tables were turned and support and grace flowed in the opposite direction, from pupil to teacher. And as Paul's life was drawing to a close, he yearned for the companionship and support of his young friend and protege. He said, come to me soon, Timothy. Bring Mark and bring my warm coat and my books, but especially the parchments, the holy scriptures to read and share. So he needed words of encouragement. He needed the presence and comfort of his friend Timothy. He needed warmth. He needed books to inspire him. But underneath it all, he needed God's sustaining words of hope and promise to hold fast as he kept faith. That is the kind of faith that Paul had, and the kind of faith that he encourages us to have through his letter to all the Timothys who follow in his footsteps, who desire to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. You know, when I think of that 700 years of ministry in that Romanian village, and 500 years and 17 generations of one family supplying faithful pastors to shepherd God's people. Or even the challenge of sustaining life-giving faith among three generations, it might seem overwhelming to some. But here's the thing. If we could see ourselves as second-generation sunflowers, concentrating our energies into producing the seeds of faith for the next generation, praying and teaching by word and example, 
being blown by the wind of God's Spirit. Someday, someday our offspring may very well be able to say, I'm a 17th generation Christian by the grace of God. If, and this is a very big if, if we continue in what we have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom it comes, even Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom be all glory and honor, dominion and praise, now and always. Amen.